when Todd called me, he said, uh, we would like for you to speak at Generous Giving again. And uh, I said, okay, what's my job? He said, well, you're the last speaker, and that's always fun. Uh, He said, and if anybody's still there, we would like for you to be the principal speaker. So I'm a money guy, and I looked up the word principal. And that's what's left when all the interest is gone. (laughs) So I understand, understand my role uh, as to what to do. Um, And actually, he said, no, he said, what I want you to do is I want you to read Joshua 13, verse 1, and that'll tell you what your topic is. So if it'll come up, there it is. When Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, you are now very old. (laughs) I was speaking about a year or so ago, and Bill Heibels and I were the speakers, and I had never met Bill. And uh, uh, so he came and sat down where I was sitting, and he said, I was so glad to see that you were on the agenda. I thought you were dead. The one thing about getting old, I'm 74, uh, and losing your memory is that you can hide your own Easter eggs. (laughs) Well, Judy and I got married 51 years ago, about a week ago, was our 51st anniversary. (laughs) And this was our first home. It was on the campus of Indiana University. There was a little trailer that was 28 feet long, 8 feet wide, 6 feet tall. You could sit on the pot, cook dinner, and do the ironing without moving. <laughs> but you don't have many quarters there, so there's not a lot to do. But we managed... There uh, are 25 or 7, I can't remember, I can't count either. But uh, we had uh, three girls, then I became a Christian, and we had two boys. I mean, that's a fact, it's just factual, and I I deal with numbers and facts, and that's the truth. But we do know this, if we'd had two boys first, we'd had two boys. There is a difference between boys and girls. We thought we were great parents, and then we had boys. (laughs) You know, as I listened to Peter and Gail uh, last night, and I thought of, they've been, they apparently got married about a year before we did. They mentioned, I did the math on it, and I think it was in 1964 they got married. We got married in 1965. But they really did a good job of depicting the difference between men and women. And as a financial advisor, I've sat sat in on so many conference uh, conversations with men and women and and I found out there's a difference between the way men and women think as a matter of fact I have a little story to illustrate it it's about a a teacher uh, who was teaching a group of English students French and she said in in French there are all the nouns are either masculine or feminine and so one of the students raised his hand and he said well what gender is computer and she looked it up and it wasn't in there. So she divided the room into men and women, 
And she gave him 30 minutes and she said, you come back and give us four reasons why it's either male or female, masculine or feminine. So the men's group came back first and they said, well, computers obviously are feminine because number one, no one but their creator understands their internal logic. <laughs> the native language that they use to communicate with other computers is incomprehensible to the rest of us. Even the smallest mistakes are stored in long-term memory for possible later retrieval. <laughs> and as soon as you make a commitment to one, you find yourself spending half your paycheck on accessories. <laughs> the women's group came back, however, and concluded that computers should be masculine because, number one, in order to get their attention, you have to turn them on. Number two, they have a lot of data, but they're clueless. <laughs> and number three, they're supposed to help you solve the problems, but half the time they are the problem. <laughs> and fourth, as soon as you make a commitment to one, you realize if you waited just a little longer, you could have gotten a newer model. <laughs> and in conclusion, I've given you all of my wisdom. Well, uh, actually, I'm going to show you what the rest of this verse said. I only used the first part of it. It says, when Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, you are now very old, and there are still very large areas of the land to be taken over. I got this in an email yesterday, uh, and I said, that's where I am. Very old, but much, much land to be taken over. Uh, and I don't understand why, uh, as none of us probably do, but uh, the Lord has allowed me to live a long life. You know, I was born in 1942, right after the beginning of World War II, and lived through the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, 2010, 2016. And uh, so it's been seven decades that I've observed, economically, spiritually. I've seen a lot, if you will. Uh, and I've been through six vocational changes in those 70 years. I always thought that this was my last one. I went to work on Wall Street right out of school. I was there for three years. Uh, then I went and started my own CPA firm and was uh, there for seven years. Got saved during that, uh, during that time. Uh, my wife almost died in uh, 1970, 72. And... Uh, went to see the pastor where we were living, uh, where we were living and asked what would have happened if I had died. And he couldn't tell her. She, does, she said, I don't remember what he said, but he couldn't give me an answer. Fortunately, I got involved in a Bible study, a Campus Crusade Bible study, and uh, accepted the Lord, told me that she'd become a Christian. I'd been raised a Christian. And I said, I know more about the Bible than you do, and it doesn't work. And not only that, if you're going to persist on this track, we may want to think about a divorce. It was the height of arrogance, if you will. So she's no dummy. She didn't, uh, she lived it out for two years, and she was a different person. And I thought, well, I'm glad she became a believer because she needed it. <laughs> but I couldn't explain away her life, and so I committed my life on the way to, uh, to Christ, on the way to play golf in 1974, and told the Lord I wasn't going to change anything. 
but I was willing to be changed. And I shot a 36 on the front side that day. And I said, man, if I'd known this, I'd have become a Christian a long time ago. <laughs> we jumped into the whole Christian life uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, we left the CPA firm I was with. I joined a subsidiary, Campus Crusade, made 10 trips to Africa. I saw the third world vis-a-vis -vis the, the first world. Uh, and it changed an awful lot in my own thinking, my own paradigms. Uh, and then in, uh, Judy got pregnant right after we moved to Atlanta. Uh, he was uh, our fifth. It was an unexpected pregnancy. It was a bad pregnancy, and he was a bad baby because he had colic. <laughs> and we were living in Atlanta. She had a husband who was in full-time ministry, gone 70% of the time around the world, and she was a mom with five kids under the age of 11. She called me at the office one day when I was in town. She said, how do you get unchristened? I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, this is the abundant life. I've had all the abundance I can take. That led to the starting of what later became Ronald Blue and Company, uh, that today is the largest Christian financial planning firm in the country. I left it 13 years ago, uh, retired from that. But I was on Wall Street, then Main Street, then Africa uh, in ministry, and I thought all those were the end. I started my own financial planning firm. Uh, did that for 23 years, thought that was the end, and God led me through uh, a series of circumstances. Larry Burkett influenced me to begin training other Christians uh, to do what I had done in terms of integrating biblical wisdom into their advice and their counsel. Incidentally, uh, as I was listening to these stories about the Jogs, uh, we've got 2,000 members now of Kingdom Advisors, and we're certifying them, and one of the certification requirements is they have to go through a Jog because it'll, it will change the way they think about money uh, and money issues. Um, so I thought Kingdom Advisors was it. And uh, four years ago, uh, my, I was having trouble climbing a hill. We, my wife and I walked a couple miles every day. And uh, she suggested I go see her cardiologist, which I did. And he said, I think you may have some blockage and we need to do a heart catheterization to just to see. I called a heart surgeon friend of mine. He said, that's right, you need to do that. So I went into the hospital. We didn't even want to pack a bag because I knew I'd be home that afternoon. And they didn't even get into my heart. And the doctor said, we've got a major problem. We have to do surgery right now. You've got significant blockage. So um, fortunately, I didn't have time to think about it. So I had open heart surgery the next day, four bypasses. And um, as I was laying there waiting to go in the operating room, I thought, you know, I'm really not afraid to die, but I'm really afraid of the recovery, <laughs> with good reason. But that changed everything also, because then the Lord opened up an opportunity to take all of my intellectual property into universities and begin teaching high school students, university students, seminarians, and churches the fundamentals of biblical wisdom. And what I want to share with you uh, is I think we have the greatest opportunity that I've ever seen. And I'll, show you, and I'll tell you why. Is This is a quote from John Steinbeck in a letter that he wrote to Adlai Stevenson in November of 1959. And then there he said, a strange species we are. We can stand anything that God and nature can throw at us save only plenty. If I wanted to destroy a nation, 
I would give it too much. And I'd have it on its knees, miserable, greedy, and sick. Think about that. That was written when I was a senior in high school, November of 1959. Uh, obviously, I was not aware of it at the time. I became aware of it several years ago. This, in fact, I think Randy Alcorn quoted it. And uh, I have lived through this. Uh, John Steinbeck was not a prophet, but he certainly was prophetic. And what I believe, as I look back over the 40s, 50s, 60s, and so forth, I have lived through the greatest run-up of wealth that the world has ever seen. There's never been anything like it. No other culture has had the wealth that we have in America. How happy are we? How contented are we? Haven't we solved all of our problems? And the reality is, is that as I look at it today, it is obvious to everyone that money is not the answer. Because you can look around. You can see people like Tiger Woods, hundreds of millions of dollars. He's worth almost a billion dollars. Is he happy? Is that the answer? Celebrity? Is that the answer? I think that right now, people are looking for an answer, and money is a, both a revealer of the heart and an entry into the heart. That's why generous giving is so significant, because it enters the heart. And we know by what Jesus said that all money issues come out of the heart. Here's what God's question is. How long, exalted man, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Yeah, this was written thousands of years ago by our God that's an infinite God and an eternal God. He doesn't need the money, as, been, as it's been said. And what we're doing is pursuing a lie and pursuing things that are worthless. He also said in Psalm 12, 12 verse 8, The wicked wander everywhere, and what is worthless is exalted by the human race. Now, here's, here's the opportunity that we have. We live in a world that is confused, contradictory advice, bad advice, when we talk about money, it's typically shame-based or guilt-based. There's fear. There's very few models. There's peer pressure. There's cultural pressure. And that's the reality. And what I have found, as I've spoken for the year, over the years, as I've gone from Wall Street to Main Street, back to Wall Street, there's three questions everyone is asking. How much is enough? Will I ever have enough? And will it always be enough? Those are legitimate questions that people, everybody are, is asking those questions, maybe not consciously, but they're trying to find the answer to the question of will I ever have enough and will it, be, will it remain enough? And we're living in a culture that is incredibly wealthy. Here's the, what they're really looking for, I believe, is will I ever have enough to be secure? Will I ever have enough to be successful? Will I ever have enough to be significant? And here's the three critical questions. Number one, who owns it? Number two, how much is enough? You'll never know what finish lines are until you set them. And number three, especially for the wealthy, is the next steward chosen and prepared to handle whatever they're going to get. 
Those three fundamental questions are really the questions that I would like for you to leave with. Have you dealt with the issue of who owns it? Because if he owns it, then every spending decision is a spiritual decision. And I can look at your checkbook and your tax returns and so forth and tell you what your spirituality is. Your checkbook is the greatest indicator of your spirituality. We've got a written record. I happen to believe that our check registers are going to be in heaven. If I believe God owns it all, Jesus is going to sit down with me and say, well, this is how you used my money, what I entrusted you with. I believe, secondly, that if he owns it, if he owns it all, he can take whatever he wants whenever he wants it. And the key to financial freedom is this. Hold it with an open hand. It's all his. He puts in what he wants to put in, and he takes out whatever he wants to take out. So none of it that I, none of it that I have did I, in effect, really earn. It's God's provision. And when I begin to close my hands on what he entrusted me with, it now controls me. And I've lost my freedom. And he wants me to hold it with an open hand and to be free. So those are the three critical questions. Very few people set the finish lines and say, this is the finish line. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. What I want to do in the next 10 or 15 minutes is I'd like to really... Uh, kind of simplify and conceptualize a basic money uh, concept. Because I think what the Lord allowed me to do by working with people over the years is I've had hundreds and hundreds of experiences. Uh, and I ran a firm where we charged uh, people for financial planning. So if we weren't giving good advice, we were fired, which I love the test of the marketplace. The reality was we didn't lose clients, and all of our advice came out of God's Word. So how do you take what you already know, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know, and make it work on a day-to-day -day basis in your unique situation? Um, and I want to kind of summarize it um, this way. Those who manage their financial life according to biblical wisdom and principles will experience contentment under all economic conditions, confidence in their financial decisions, and excellent communications at all levels, resulting in maximized generosity of time, talents, and treasures. Now, how did I, the reason I came up with this, I came up with this about two or three years ago in terms of coalescing it, because I got a call from one of the client managers at Ronald Blue and Company, and he said, uh, you may not know, but Chuck, and he gave me his last name, died uh, recently. Uh, and Francis, his widow, wanted me to call you and talk to you and tell you what impact you had in their life in 1985, 86, 87 when I was working with them. When I first went to visit Chuck and Francis, uh, he was a CEO of a uh, very, very large uh, chain of grocery stores, made a lot of money. I'd met him at a conference of professional athletes, and they were major donors to this organization. Uh, and they wanted to meet with me, talk about their finances. <clears throat> so I had their address, and I drove up to their home, which was in a trailer park. That was a nice trailer park, but it was a trailer park. And I stayed with them in their trailer home. Well, they were making hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they wanted to know what do you think we could give away? 
And I said to them, I said, I think you could probably give away a million dollars over the next few years. Developed a plan, and they gave away a million dollars. Well, Frances, when she called, she said, I want you to tell Ron that not only did we give that million, we gave millions upon millions upon millions. Now, they chose how much is enough. Was it the right choice? It was the right for them. It wasn't necessarily always the right choice, but it was the right choice for them. Their lifestyle determined how much they had to give, and their calling was to give maximally. Now, couple that with another conversation that I had. This was with a friend of mine uh, who uh, was in his late 30s. Uh, he was a very, very successful physician. And he, he had just finished building a million-dollar home. And so his question to me was, Ron, is it okay for a Christian to live in a million-dollar home? This was in 1980-81. million-dollar home where they lived was very, very opulent. And I said, Lord, what do I say? James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. And I threw up that prayer. Lord, what do I say to somebody like that? So I said to him, I said, well, what do you think God thinks about it? He said, well, I don't know. I said, how much time are you spending asking him? He said, well, not much. He said, I'm in surgery all day and call at night. And I said, what are you doing at 4 o'clock in the morning? He said, well, hopefully sleeping. I said, well, then you don't have anything better to do. Get up at 4 o'clock and read the Bible for 10 minutes and ask God what he thinks about you living in this home. And he did it. A year later, we were on vacation with the family, and uh, his wife said, Ron, he's spending two and a half hours a day reading the Bible, praying. This person became one of the leading evangelical leaders in the country today. And he's, through his uh, practice, he gave away millions and millions and millions of dollars, and he never could sell that home. They put it on the market multiple times, and God didn't allow him to sell it until about two years ago. So there you have a trailer park, and you have a million-dollar home. Which one was right? They were both right because they were asking God the question for them and uniquely for them. Well, here's the point. Um, I like to depict it as an iceberg, and I've got several visuals here that I'd like for you to kind of get a hold of. And the iceberg is 90% underwater, as we know. Well, that's the why. The 90% is the why. And so you can't answer the how question until you've answered the why question. In other words, a biblical worldview should drive the how. But we typically almost always start with the how. The techniques, the tools, the advisors, all of the, the things that we know, but the starting point is the why. And the why is God owns it all. And if God owns it all, you are content. I like to think of it this way. In fact, I think of it, I know this. Behavior always follows belief. So if my behavior is a particular way, financially or any other way, I've got to go back and check my belief system. God is far more interested in changing my thinking than my circumstances. He wants me to think differently and then act differently. So, perspective, 
Number one point, perspective is everything. If you don't start with God owning it all and a biblical worldview, you're never ever going to end up at the right place. And here's the point. If you don't ask yourself the right question, you'll never get the right answer. And the question was, how much time are you spending with God? Who owns it? The right questions will drive the right answers. Well, let me show you something. Uh, second point, uh, early 90s, uh, I was asked to testify before a congressional subcommittee. Senator Dodd from Connecticut was the questioner. And Senator Dodd asked me, he said, what would you tell the American people about their money? And once again, God, what do I say? <laughs> I mean, I wasn't prepared for that. But right off the top of my head came this. I said, Senator, I would tell them to spend less than they earn, avoid the use of debt, build liquidity or margin or flexibility into their finances, set long-term goals so that they can prioritize their spending between the short-term and the long-term. He picked up his pencil and he wrote them down. And then he said, well, it seems to me that that'd work at any income level. He's a senator, he's smart. <laughs> and I said, you're right, Senator, including the United States government. <laughs> but here's the point. Biblical principles are always relevant. They're always transcendent, and they're never going to change. Those were four fundamental biblical principles of money management in God's Word. And I would add a fifth. And the fifth is this, give generously. Managing money is comprised of nothing more than those five principles. And you can find the references in Scripture. Spend less than you earn, avoid the use of debt, build liquidity, set long-term goals, and give generously. There's no other answer about managing money. It's not, again, about the tools or techniques or whatever. It is... I can always ask myself the question, am I living under these guidelines? Am I managing God's money this particular way? Here's a great illustration. That's a home from on Galveston Island. Those of you in Texas remember Hurricane Ike. And uh, uh, this is another picture of that same home. Pretty compelling. Well, what happened? Well, this family had been through a hurricane before, and so they built a hurricane-proof house. And when the hurricane came, their home was damaged, but it was still standing. Now, does that remind you of anything in Scripture? Let me read it to you. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rains fell and pounded that, the rivers rose, the hurricane came, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. Now, you, you know the other side of the story, the foolish man. God's word those principles are never going to change. They're always going to be right, and they're always going to be relevant. God's word doesn't change. So if, if I have the right perspective, then the decisions, 
Principle-based decision-making always leads to confidence. Perspective leads to contentment. Principle-based decision-making always leads to confidence. As I, as I heard the story of Chuck and Francis, I realized that they had the right perspective, they had built their home on the right principles, as well as my physician friend. And when the hurricanes came, such as 2008, there was damage, but they didn't have their house blown over. So simple. Thirdly, let me give you one other client illustration. I was speaking three or four weeks ago uh, to a board of trustees meeting of an organization, and I made the comment in talking. I said, you know, the wealthy, I, I, first of all, I made the comment, I said, you know, actually, Bob, I've written 21 books, or I've written one book 21 times. Uh, and I said to the audience, I said, you know, I've written a bunch of books on financial planning, but you need to know that I have a financial planner because I can't hold myself accountable. They're not going to tell me anything technically that I don't know, but I know that I will never maximize the resources that I have unless I listen to somebody else that I'm holding myself accountable to. Now, he's given me back, in terms of principles, everything that I've written, but I know that I need to ask him if I'm going to buy that new car, make this move, or whatever. And I know this, 80% of women will experience widowhood, and most are unprepared. Most of them feel fear, especially when they're widowed. And so I want my wife to have some place to go to talk to him. Well, he came up to me afterwards, and I had known him before, and he said, I need to talk to you. He's a, now, he's a person, he employs 3,000 people, he's got two jets, two helicopters, a stunt plane, and multiple homes, and he gives away, he's an extraordinarily generous person, gives away millions and millions and millions of dollars every year. And he said, he said, you know, I said, I've got a problem. He said, I'm, he, nobody holds me accountable. He said, I've got all kinds of advisors, but nobody holds me accountable. Could you talk to me? And he said, my big problem is, he said, I know that if I invest money, I can make four or five times on that money, and then I can give it away. So what should I give and what should I invest? Good questions. So I said, uh, I said fine, I was going to be in his location uh, within a couple weeks, and he and his wife came in and sat down, and it was fascinating because what, what I saw was this. There's only five things you can do with money. Now, I saw that before I sat down with him, but I said, there's only five things you can do with money. You can spend it to live. You can spend it, live, we call it live, give, owe, grow. You can spend it to live. Uh, you can spend it to give. You can spend it to owe either your taxes uh, or your debt, uh, and then you can grow it. That's the only five things you can do with money. Every one of us has a pie. Some of it's small, sometimes it's big. But it's still, these are the only five things I can do with money. And that was what his real question was, uh, was how much should I allocate between growing and giving? All is a part of the pie. How big a piece do I want to cut of the pie? It's a fascinating conversation because I think it's, and it's a typical one that I've seen many, many times, where you have an entrepreneurial husband and a wife who hates spreadsheets like my wife, she says, don't ever bring a spreadsheet to show me. I don't want to see a spreadsheet. And what 
ticks me off is she intuitively makes decisions that typically tend to be right. <laughs> so, and that was the situation here. As I listened to them, she, like a lot of women, had a lot of fear of debt. And he had learned how to use other people's money to make money. But he wasn't hearing her. And so I was able to say, did you hear that? And he said, yeah, but it doesn't make any sense. I said, you're right. It doesn't make any sense. But if you follow a principle to make that decision, chances are you're going to find out that God can do things in a miraculous way. I had a man, one, well, I don't have time to go into that story. But the second thing that came out of the conversation was uh, he had made a commitment to her that he would, he, had, he invested in lots of companies, that he would never put any more money into this company, whatever it was, because it was losing money and he kept pumping money into it. And he promised her that he would never, ever put any more money into it. Now, this is a good couple, a Christian couple, generous couple. He was in a board meeting right after that. They said, if we don't make our payroll, if we don't have $125,000 by Friday, we don't make payroll. And he said to the board, well, I promised my wife I wouldn't put any more money in here, but I'll loan you $125,000 if you promise to give it back to me on Monday. Well, guess what happened? Monday came and went, and he didn't get the $125,000. And then he had to tell his wife. Now, his wife had an intuitive sense of what was right, and he chose to use his business sense to make that decision. He, they said she had tears coming down her face, and she said it almost cost us our marriage. Because a lot of times, guys, and I'll speak from my own personal experience, we don't trust our wives to know what's the right decisions. And a lot of times we get ourselves into trouble. And again, I've got story after story after story. But here's what I would encourage you to do. If you look at this pie chart, you know how much income you have. You know how much you pay in taxes. You know how much you give. You know how much you're paying in debt. And, and, and you know what you're saving and investing. That's five things you know and could find out in about 20 minutes by looking at your tax returns. What's left, if you take income, less those four things, is your lifestyle. And I would encourage you to make that calculation and put the percentages in there as to what you're spending. That tells a lot. Do you like the percentages? And a, and a pie chart is a really great conceptual framework to look at your money and where it's going. Let me tell you just a couple things. Live, we're commanded to provide for our family, but we can never protect them with money. Only God can protect them. And we have to answer the question in living, how much is enough? The give, why does God want us to give? Giving always breaks the power of money. When I go like that, I break the power of money, and I cannot break the power of money any other way. When I owe, Debt always mortgages the future, and you always have money coming in tax-free and going out after tax to pay back the debt. I, well, I've written a book on that, uh, and I could give a whole bunch of uh, scenarios on that, which I've done. And I owe taxes, but taxes are symptomatic of God's provision. 
So I hope on April 15th last week, you were on your knees as you signed the check and said, God, thank you. Thank you that I had the money. Thank you that you're the one that made the provision for what I, for, for this, uh, you, you provided an income for me. And growing, growing margin is the only way to meet long-term goals. So perspective leads to contentment. Following principles leads to confidence. And these priorities, which are simultaneous and competing because there's only one pie, lead to priorities and convictions. And priorities and personal convictions lead to commitment. Those three things will allow you to think rightly about money and to make the right decision. It'll also be something that's not real hard, difficult to teach your children. I have a vision, and I have a vision that um, we would be able to teach high school students, university students, churches. We're releasing church curriculum next uh, August, uh, high school curriculum next year, uh, and university curriculum in May of this year. And it all has the same message, and it's the message I just gave you, plus a whole bunch more. But it's not that hard. And I think the world says money's not the answer. And God's word, God's people can say, we know it's not the answer, but we do know what the answer is. And you can experience contentment. You can never experience being financially free. It's just a mathematical calculation. You can experience contentment, confidence, and commitment and lead your life, I believe, in a way that when you stand before the Lord, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with just a few things, just a few things. Now I will put you in charge of many things. Thank you. Thank you.